0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rethink Retail's podcast. I'm your guest host, Emily Pfeiffer. I'm a principal analyst for commerce technology at Forrester, one of Rethink Retail's top retail influencers. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my guest, Mike Salguero. Mike is the founder and CEO of ButcherBox, a leading direct-to-consumer brand that delivers humanely raised meat and sustainably sourced seafood to consumers across the U.S., ButcherBox has become B Corporation certified, signaling the brand's commitment to using its business as a force for good. Welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So from what I've read, you didn't really have any meat industry experience before launching ButcherBox. I'd love to start by having you tell us a little bit about the story of how and why you decided to get into the business of selling meat through the mail.
1: Sure. Yeah. So before I started ButcherBox, I had been working at a venture-backed Business called custommade.com, which was an online marketplace for woodworkers and jewelers. So I had been running an online company for about seven years. That turned out not working out very well. And we ended up having to basically let everyone go, including myself. And I was trying to figure out what was next. And during the time I was at custommade, my wife, who has a thyroid condition, Which is an autoimmune disease. She, we were following these elimination diets, and each of these elimination diets said, eat grass fed beef. And we couldn't find it. Um, I lived in downtown Boston at the time, and we'd go to our local store, and uh, there might be ground, like grass fed ground beef, but that was it. And I just got really curious about, like, huh, well, we know we're going to have to start eating differently. And, uh, Everything I've read suggests that grass-fed beef is um, better for the animal and the end consumer and the environment and um, where where do you get this stuff? Um, and so I just got obsessed with how do you find grass-fed beef and ended up um, finding a farmer and buying a half cow from a farmer, which ended up being too much meat. So I started selling it to my friends. And then one of my friends was like, this would be so much better if it was delivered to my house. I was like, yeah. That would be better. And at the time, I was really looking to start a hobby. I was not really ready to go back into running a company, running a big company. And the idea with ButcherBox was we were going to start a company. We were going to raise no money. I was willing to put in $10,000 of my own money. And the thought was if we got a 1,000 subscribers, getting a box every month, and we made $20 on each subscriber, you've got a nice... like cool little lifestyle business on your hands. And I thought that that was a fun endeavor, and so decided to start it and see if I could make it work. And yeah, I had no meat experience before this. I um, didn't really know how to put all the pieces together until I met somebody who had worked at Omaha Steaks who really opened up a bunch of doors for us. And uh, I, I started with a lot of curiosity and a lot of naivete. And um, that really worked because what we ended up doing was we, we created a product and an offering that I, I don't think anyone in the meat world thought would sell. This idea that you could sell a subscription, this idea when we started, we just had this curated box. So we, you essentially picked your protein. Do you want beef? Do you want beef and chicken? Do you want beef, chicken and pork? And then we would send you whatever we wanted to with with recipes on how to cook it. And these concepts were like, we, we did it because we didn't want to hold inventory and we wanted to be really careful with how much cash we were putting out there. Um, and everyone who looked at this who was in the industry was like, this will never work. And it turned out it did work. Um, and so in many ways, the way in which we started the company really fueled um, the approach we took, which really helped us to, uh, to grow and to thrive.
0: I feel like at some point in that story, you had some really good chest freezers in your garage or something. <laughs> Did it go that uh, way? No,
1: no. I, well, we, we do have a very large freezer uh, at our house um, now because we're always, you know, one of the challenges of running the company is um, you're always asked to sample new products. So there's always like different, different products to sample. My kids love it. It's like, okay, we have some new meatballs to sample. Um. But uh we we went third party everything right away. Um so the idea was that this business was gonna be a hobby, that I was gonna be able to go pursue something else or I was gonna be able to like, you know, live in Argentina and just look at my numbers once a day. And so I built it with that in mind. And sounds I didn't great. Yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> it's like the it's the dream. Um I, I I built it with that in mind. So everything was third party from the start. So we had a third party Cutting facility that would cut the meat, and then a third-party fulfillment facility that would take the meat, put it in a box, and ship it out to the customer. Um, and so, so we really were careful about not building up too much stuff that like I would have to do um, because I I, I really wanted this to be a hobby.
0: So it did, though, evolve from your personal challenges, right? You you were struggling to find that grass-fed beef, so you launched in twenty fifteen with just over $200,000 in pre-orders, right? That was kind of your plan through a, a Kickstarter campaign. This has now grown to over half a billion dollars in revenue. Have you run into similar challenges in sourcing as when you started trying to find the grass-fed meats and, and the quality uh, meat that you're looking for at this new scale?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so first of all, uh, I, I failed at the mission of creating a hobby business that That's pretty clear. Um, I can't really yeah, yeah. I can't really sit back in Argentina and look at the numbers once a day um, and, and and that's okay. I mean, so what was very clear very early on, like day one of the Kickstarter, was that we had struck a nerve that we were providing a product that lots and lots of other customers were looking for and needed, and that we were solving a problem so a little bit of, uh, it, it really depends on, so we work in multiple species, beef, chicken, pork, various types of seafood, bison, lamb. And in each of the species, we have to do an incredible amount of work to get to a level that we're comfortable with providing to our customer. I'll talk about beef because I think it's the it's it's the biggest mover within our mix. And also it's the most interesting and probably at, from, from a meat perspective, the most controversial these days. Mm-hmm. So beef in this country, ninety-eight um, percent of the beef in this country is raised, uh, is finished in a feedlot. What does that mean? It basically the last six months of its life, it's living in a confined feeding operation where it's fed grains and corn. Two percent are grass-fed, the type of thing that we work with. Now the reality is that every cow starts out exactly the same. Six months is cow calf, so cow and its mother, or calf and its mother year where the cow is just on grass and then six months of feedlot finishing for most of them and the other ones are just kept on grass and so as long as you 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 have good projections and you know kind of what what to expect and because we're a subscription business we're pretty good at being able to predict what's going to happen there's plenty of supply out there it's just about making the commitments to people to say hey don't instead of sending it to the feedlot which, by the way, when you send to the feedlot, you're at the whim of whatever the corn market is doing at that given time. So these, these farmers are incredibly exposed to the commodity prices that are like spiking. Right. So mm-hmm. if the price of corn goes up, feedlot can't pay as much because, they're, um, they, because that's the input that they're going to use. And so they drive the price down and all of a sudden the farmer uh, doesn't make any money on the cow that they raise for a year. We are in the business of uh, contracting with those farmers and contracting with people early to say, hey, raise it this way and we will be your buyer at the end. And so there's actually like a tremendous amount of supply out there. We, we've had to build programs from scratch. Chicken, chicken and pigs are, are more have to be built from scratch. But as long as we can keep our commitments, understand how much we're going to be uh, needing. We've had a fairly easy time, with the exception of the, uh, the few months of COVID where things went really bonkers. We've had for a fairly everyone. good time. Yeah, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the, the product is out there. It's really about getting people to change their practices. Which Do you is, feel
0: like you're getting the industry to change its practices? Do you feel like that 2%? like Are you, are you having an impact on how many cows? We hope so. Hours? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, um, so we have a mission to transform meat. Mm -hmm. And in order to transform meat, you really need to play with the industry. You can't just transform meat by like working on the fringes. You have to like work with the companies, the large companies. And many of these companies are willing to change provided that they have a buyer. The challenge is they're like, well, I'm not going to do that because that's too expensive or too much infrastructure or nobody's actually going to buy that. And we come in and we say, hey, if you raise this chicken to the standard, we'll buy all of them. Or if you raise this pig to the standard, we'll buy all of them. It's a much and
0: easier sell to the investors. It?
1: It's much easier sell to those companies who are, um, yeah, like like wanting to make changes. They see that there's a customer. There's definitely a big rise in the conscientious customer. They see that the rise of conscientious customers is happening. They want to do something about it, and we kind of help them. We give them like a leg up. We give them their first customer to be able to you know, provide a different quality than what they have currently.
0: Yeah, it it really comes through when you talk about how you source your products, um, that you care about the welfare of the animals, this transparency. I know that ButcherBox is certified as as a B Corp. Um, At Forrester, you know, we talk about values-based selling and how more consumers, especially younger ones, are looking for values like environmentally conscious business practices when they shop, that these things are getting more and more important to consumers. Do you think that these changes in consumer sentiment to create, um, do you think they're going to create more competition as other meat companies maybe also start to focus on more sustainable practices?
1: So first of all, I I totally agree that um, consumers are increasingly waking up to wanting a higher standard for the products, a lot of their products, but certainly in meat as well. And the data suggests that there's a there's a group that is called flexitarian, which is really a hey, I eat meat but I'm also supplementing with vegetables and meat is more of a is not like the main thing on the plate. That group has doubled in the past 2 years, whereas people who define themselves as meat eaters has gone down. So, meat eaters has gone down, flexitarian has gone up. Those people are still eating meat, but they're also making sure that they're making conscientious choices. And when you ask them what they care about, they're really in this intersection of how is the animal treated, how is the farmer treated, how is the environment treated, and all of it has to do with this, this feeling of feeling guilty, like I'm eating this and I feel bad about what I'm eating because I'm told that like it's bad for the environment, it's bad for you, etc. Um, and that, that wave is coming, that wave is already here, um, and meat companies for sure need to wake up to that. And I think we are a good, you know, canary in the coal mine saying, Hey, there's a customer over here, a really big customer. Look how big of a company we grew in like in seven years. Um, you know, like these customers want something that you're not providing. You can't fake it anymore. Cause what a lot of the companies do is they put a green leaf on there and hope for the best. They're not like actually making changes. Um, and so we say, you know, we, you can't fake it anymore. Uh, and, um, to answer your question on competition. Um, so I started ButcherBox as a hobby. We never raised outside funding. Um, so we're, we're fairly unique in terms of direct to consumer companies that haven't raised any, anything outside. So we have no investors, um and i think that's allowed us to take a pretty unique perspective on like for example competition so my honest to goodness answer on like hey are you worried about competition if all of these large meat companies start providing a much better product to the customer like uh, like and and change the way meat is raised in this country hell no i i think that'd be great like put me out of business that'd be awesome because what that means is that a huge portion of the meat, it's no longer 98% this way and 2% that way. It's like, oh, it's 10%, 20%, 40%. That would be amazing. And if that meant that like, we went out of business because like, everybody copied what we were doing, like, great. It's actually better. Yeah. You know, Our mission is to transform meat. And that might include like, us getting run over in the process. And that just might be part of like, the journey that we're on here.
0: Then you'd need a new hobby. <laughs> That's
1: right. I need a new hobby. Mm-hmm. You know, transforming meat was like, you know, <laughs> just very one thing.
0: Hobby. Yeah. So I struggle with something. My dad is a very serious meat eater, and he's one of those people who wants to go to the meat counter and personally select his cut of meat. How do you win over picky customers like him?
1: Yeah. I'm not sure if, um, if we can to be to be totally honest um i think people who have a relationship with a butcher where they're going to the counter and choosing a cut of meat um that's a rare a very rare and special relationship that it and that's fewer and farther between like there, there are very few places like that left most of the meat that, that you're purchasing is no longer cut at a butcher shop. It's um, you know, prepackaged and sitting on the shelf. But if 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 your dad is going somewhere and buying something and that like he likes to pick it out, I think you know he should continue to do that. I really appreciate
0: um, how you made that sound almost romantic.
1: <laughs> yep. it is. It's a it, you know, I, what what one of the things that's like, I, I I constantly remind our staff about this is like. It, and, and I don't want to gross out the audience but like people ingest this product like you think about the things that like you 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 sell or you could be selling whether it's software or it's furniture or like yes you're going to sit on it or yes you're going to have it in your home but the amount of trust and intimacy that somebody has to like take product that you provided and fuel their body with it and feed it to their families that's a huge responsibility. And like, you know, so yeah, if your dad has a little romance with a a, a, a neighborhood butcher, like I, I, I think that's great.
0: Very strong feelings. Okay, that's nice. Thanks. I'll tell him he's okay. So briefly, just to talk about COVID times for a moment, we know that grocery has been increasing in terms of digital adoption uh, over the past few years, more and more consumers are willing to buy food online than they have been before, my dad side. So did you see an uptick in subscriptions when the pandemic hit? And how did you meet that demand while simultaneously dodging the labor and supply chain challenges that everyone was facing along with it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we had a very similar spike to what a lot of other you know, toilet paper food rice nuts meat companies uh saw so um it was around st patrick's day of uh 2020 so like march 17th i think we were adding thousands and thousands and thousands of people a day we're just getting slammed with orders oh. and the other thing that was happening is our members were also asking for like if, if they were getting a monthly box all of a sudden they just got a box a week ago, but they want another box. And so there was this big wave of members moving their bill date in to like get another box in their freezer.
0: So much for demand planning.
1: Yeah, so much for demand planning. That's right. And so we tried to ride the wave as long as we could. We lasted like 10 days. And because again, this product like it it doesn't, it's 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 you need a plan, like you can't just like manufacture the product and then we made the you know i think the right decision but i think possibly the different decision what we said was hey look this is what i I said to my staff like i I only eat butcher box like at my house we only eat butcher box i am not about to go to the grocery store and i don't think our customers should be either they shouldn't have to go to the grocery store either so what we're going to do is we're going to put up a wait list and not allow any more customers to sign up for a new box while we satisfy the current customers that we have. Because we have a core value of being member obsessed and we knew that our customers needed that box. Like they were fearful, they didn't want to go to the store. And getting that box was really important to our to our members. And so yeah, we so we rode the wave and then we realized like wow, this is like way too much demand. So we put up a wait list, which we had up from kind of April, beginning of April till the middle of July, um, while we digested the new demand, new size, but we doubled the business that year. Uh, I think going into COVID, we were about two hundred twenty-five million, and after COVID, we were four hundred fifty million or four hundred forty million. Wow! So <clears throat> we doubled the business, and the other thing that happened is uh, we doubled the business with like really no marketing spend because mm-hmm. we didn't to need you. to market. It just came to us, which was very different than kind of what, what we were used to.
0: Incredible. So you talk a lot about sourcing the meat. That's, that's the product you sell. I spend a lot of my time talking about logistics and uh, digital operations. So I, I just I have a question about the dry ice, right? This is sort of the magic that keeps your products frozen until they arrive, but it's got its own complex logistics. You have to source it store sure. it, calculate the right amount in yep. a package? How did you work through all of that?
1: Yeah. So first, I, I love that you uh, care a lot about the logistics side. And I think that's oftentimes a side that e- people who work in e-commerce or who start companies in e-commerce don't really pay attention to. And it's actually where all the money's made. Like it turns out that- Or lost. That, or lost, right. It turns out that when you're send, sending thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of packets or millions of packages a month, like even the tape that closes the box is worth negotiating because you're talking about millions of feet of tape. And so you really need to like focus on everything and negotiate everything and be just doggedly trying to drive up quality and drive down costs all the time. And I don't think people do that. Like they don't think about, hey, if we save a penny, like a truckload is four hundred dollars cheaper, and if we're running hundreds of those a week, like it's a huge number. Um, and so I I believe that a lot of profit and success is gained by focusing on the operations. And I think oftentimes people are like, eh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's like it's all set up. We make enough margin, and like no, like go for it. Um, <clears throat> to your question on dries, yes, dries is very complicated. Not sure if you know, we actually uh, started our own dry ice factory. So we have a dry ice factory in Oklahoma City, and we have a new dry ice factory launching in December. Uh, it was supposed to be open, but there was some part that we've been waiting for. Uh, launching in Please tell me you have December. a really
0: good time at Halloween. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's so far away, I mean, I, you know. But yes, the dry ice factory, you can, you can definitely make some really good smoke. Um, so we're going to have two dry ice factories. And so like, why is a meat company involved in dry ice? Well, to your point, so we ship frozen. And what that means is if we don't have dry ice, we can't ship the box. Mm -hmm. And what we saw in 2020 was, um, there was a run on carbon dioxide, which is an input into, um, into dry ice. So all of the beverage companies were buying up all the CO2, which made dry ice short. And then the vaccines were gonna be shipped with, they had to be shipped at like negative 100 degrees or whatever. So they were using up all this dry ice. And so we were like, huh, maybe we should get into this dry ice game ourselves because if we don't have dry ice, we can't ship. And our our customers can't get product that they're relying on us to provide. Um, And so yes, there is, uh, so we manufacture the dry ice out of Oklahoma City and run it to our distribution facilities. Sometimes we have to supplement with more dry ice. Um, Dry ice burns at about five pounds, five, it dissipates at five pounds per day in transit. And so if you have a box and it's going to be in transit for two days, you're putting in 10 pounds of dry ice into that box. But then if it's like the summer, and paying Paying for for the weight of the
0: shipping package.
1: And then if it's the summer or if there's going to be a storm or if, you know, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're basically on the fly, real-time calculating how many blocks of dry ice to put into the box based on the zip code, how likely is it to be on time, because if it's not likely to be on time, we should add another block in, and you're paying for more weight, and dry ice also costs a bunch, so it's, it's, this, it's this dance of how much dry ice you need. And it's, uh, yeah, no, it's fascinating, and I think uh, w- we we're on track to do about 27 million pounds of dry ice or something like that so it's 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 a huge number and we uh it, yet again it's one of these things where like the difference between really negotiating really understanding dry ice and negotiating dry ice versus just buying it on the open market is like it's night and day in terms of those the the value you can provide
0: i have to say i was Always impressed that my box would come in. I, when my box arrived, I would have just that little nugget left. And I was like, yeah. somebody's timing this really well.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Right? If you have like a little chip left, that's chip perfect. Because if nothing's left, then you're like, well, this didn't get shipped with, with any ice. And it's like, well, why do you think it's still cold? Like, how does that work? But So the customer doesn't like it if there's nothing left. So a little bit left is the way to go. And that all depends on like when you opened it, how long could it stay on your on your doorstep, how full the box was. That has a really, a really big impact on thermal, the, sure. the thermal. Just bed. like your freezer. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated piece of our business. We have about 15 employees and a director of dry ice who, uh, you know, that all we do all day long is think about dry ice. And we have actually are now overproducing, so we're able to sell dry ice to other companies, which helps then turn what is a what has been a cost center into a profit center
0: so uh that's incredible and as the spouse of um, a mad scientist i just want to make sure to tell you that lasers and dry ice are a very good combination
1: oh okay i I haven't tried that
0: Mm -hmm. lasers okay my job here is done so forrester recently published that digital influenced offline retail sales will grow from 59% last year to 70% five years from now. So these are offline sales in retailers that are influenced by a digital experience. So as we think about what's next for a digital native brand like ButcherBox, can we expect to see you following in the footsteps of some other digital natives and moving into physical retail locations?
1: Yes, we are actually in one retail location currently, soon to be many many more so we we won't be opening our own stores anytime soon a lot of the other digitally native brands whether it's Allbirds or warby parker or you name it open their own stores i currently don't see a lot of good strategy in that for us so here are the facts post-covid grocery or the percentage of people who are regularly buying grocery online Almost doubles and it's at like 11.4%, at least according to, I think it's the supermarket news uh, report. So 11.4% of customers are buying groceries online. But when you actually dig into that number, a large percentage of that number, like north of 70% of that number, is click and collect or, you know, kind of like Instacart delivery or otherwise like kind of grocery shopping. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like not shipping direct to consumer. So if you look at the the percentage of customers who are willing to buy the product that we're providing, which is direct to consumer, shipped to your door, not from the grocery store, is actually pretty small. And as you get bigger and bigger, it's like we've kind of tapped out that addressable market. Now we think that addressable market is going to grow, but like there's a lot more customers who are going to the grocery store, um, or who are going to like a specialty store, to the you know the the local specialty store. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 next frontier for us is hey, we have this great brand and we're spending all this money to like put our brand out in the world and you know, we put up a TV ad. So you put up a TV ad, and if only three to four percent of people would be willing to buy online direct to consumer, that means we could just make our marketing more effective by just opening up more channels. And so we've been in, in conversations with large retailers as well as really small specialty stores that want to provide a much better product and don't really have anywhere to go, turn to. We are looking at either taking over parts of his freezer. So like, hey, you have a freezer, maybe there's some products that really aren't moving, like we'll take over that. Or um, putting up our own freezer, like a, a fully branded butcher box freezer with with product in it. And like I said, we're in one store, we should be in about 10 in the next couple of, well, really a couple of weeks, but let's say a month or two. And then we I I think there's a there's a there's a there there in ButcherBox being in retail. And we're really excited to push it forward over the next couple of years.
0: It's great. So with a minute or so left, this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything you think I should have asked you that's important for us to know?
1: Well, one of the things that people sometimes ask is um why did we pursue B Corp certification? So uh, B Corp certification is you have to go through a lengthy process of uh, you know, documenting and answering questions about your practices, your business practices, et cetera. And really for me, the thing that was the most attractive about being a B Corp certified company is that we got to change our legal documents so when you start a company when you run a company you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders to always act in their best interest to in to your, your job is to improve or increase shareholder value when you're b corp certified you actually get to change that you you get to not only be worried about shareholder value but you get to be worried about the impact you're having on the world and for us, that's a really big deal. Like we think that a meat company that cares deeply about the impact that they're having on the environment, on the animals, on the farmers, on the workers in the supply chain, and are willing to take a lifetime to figure out like the right way to do this and change the industry and possibly put ourselves out of business like I, I think that's the type of meat company that we really need customers to get get behind and help us to really make a dent in a very entrenched, hard-to-change industry.
0: Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so interesting.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Now I want to speak. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast.